Welcome to Old Flames. I'm your host, retired firefighter, turned author and history professor, Lee Hutch. I have another special introductory message for you this week. Uh, the following episode comes with the strongest possible content warning. It will consist of a discussion of firefighting in Germany during World War II, and with that, of course, it touches on uh, Nazi Germany and also contains graphic descriptions of what it was like on the ground during a heavy air raid, along with actual audio recorded during some of those raids. Do not listen to this episode with children in a room, and you might not want to listen to it during your lunch break either. Now, introduction aside, let's travel back in time to an era in which being a firefighter meant not only being a firefighter, but also a frontline soldier in a global war. Achtung, Achtung. Hier ist der Befehlstand der ersten Flakdivision Berlin. Die gemeldeten Bomberverbände befinden sich im Raum Hannover-Braunschweig. Wir kommen wieder. The introduction that you heard was uh, an actual recording of an official air raid announcement uh, from the commander of Berlin's air defenses. Uh, believe that recording is from 1944. Um, at the very beginning and the very end of it, you heard a ticking sound. Almost sounded like a like a clock ticking. That was a pretty interesting piece of technology that was developed in Germany during the war that I will uh, talk more about later. So just remember that ticking noise because I'll I'll reference it again um, as we move along uh, move along today. So before I get into the full topic itself, uh, I guess I should probably tell you how I came to be interested in this topic. Um, when I was in grad school and graduate school working on my master's in history, I was still, of course, working as a firefighter uh, at the time. And when you get a, I can't speak for really other disciplines. Um, I have a master's in history. I also have a master's in criminal justice. Uh, in, in both of those cases, you know, in graduate school, you have to conduct original research into a certain topic and in the case of my master's in history my focus was on the german fire service during world war ii now my reason for selecting the german fire service during world war ii is because i already knew you know from growing up with a world war ii veteran that and what you know as a, even as a kid you know i've i've absorbed world war ii books and movies you know except something i was always interested in and so i knew a lot about the london fire brigade in particular during the blitz and that's a pretty well-known story you know a thousand uk firefighters died uh, or killed in action during world war ii in bombing raids on the uk with about a third of them being from from London itself and there you know there's books written about the London Fire Brigade and the Blitz there's movies documentaries uh even just recently a couple weeks ago the Getting Salty podcast which is a it's a firefighting podcast by some FDNY guys they they did an episode where they actually had a guest from the London Fire Brigade on to talk about the London Fire Brigade during the Blitz I mean that's a well-known story and me having the kind of brain that's always questioning things always asking questions you know I got to thinking, I was, you know, like, wait a second, how come, 
you know, we know so much about the London Fire Brigade during the Blitz, or the and the and the UK Fire Service as a whole during World War II. I mean, I don't want to act like it was only London because it wasn't. But you know, German cities were bombed far heavier and for far longer. So why don't we know anything about the way they fought fires in Germany during World War II? So I got to kind of digging into it, and there really aren't a lot of English language sources, and uh, even a lot of the archival records that they have in Germany, you know, quite a few of them didn't make it through the war, you know, as you can imagine, just given the, the level of destruction. So I set out to track down and interview as many people as I could who had been firefighters in Germany during the war. And they fell into two categories. Uh, category one was professional firefighters, meaning these were people who their job was to be a firefighter. But And all of the ones that I talked to had been firefighters before the war, or firefighters during the war and after. Category two was auxiliary fire service personnel. Uh, these were individuals who were mostly teenagers and an even mix of men and women. Because uh, the, the uh, German fire service did use female auxiliary firefighters, use young women, 18, 19, 20 years old, uh, to supplement manpower. But teenage boys as well. So boys are a little bit too young for for active military service. So I, I was able to conduct a few dozen interviews. And one of the really interesting things to me is almost universally, almost every single person I talked to, and granted this was like 20 years ago, but... Uh, and I think most of them, most of the people I talked to are, are, um, have passed away by now, but um, almost all the people I talked to, almost all of them said, you're the first person that's ever asked us about this before. Like no one's ever asked us about our, specifically about our firefighting experiences during the war. And one thing that I think helped me in a way was that I was at the time, and while I'm doing these interviews, I was still an active firefighter myself, you know, still a working firefighter that allowed us to sit down and talk as one professional to another. Um, it wasn't like, Oh, I'm just this academic guy that knows nothing about firefighting here, asking them all these questions. I mean, we were able to speak uh, as professionals one to another, you know, and the fact that, you know, we were from different countries and we worked in different eras that really didn't matter because the firefighter is a firefighter and we, it doesn't matter. Like I, I could travel back in time, and talk to somebody who was a firefighter in 1920. You know, if I travel back in time to 1920, we could sit down and talk shop and understand what we're, you know, what each other talking about. Because there, uh, even if I were traveling back in time to 1920 to a different country, because our commonalities in the fire service that transcend all bonds of nationality, you know, ethnicity, or even uh, time. So that. They, they really opened up to me in a way that I think they may might not have done if I was just someone that had no background in the fire service. And, you know, the stories that they told me, I mean, some of them are, are absolutely you know, brutal stories. And I'll relate a few of the, the anecdotes uh, that I learned here in this, in this podcast episode, too, of course. Um, but just remember, this is stuff that actually happened to, to, to real people. And... I will say it's difficult to, uh, this is a topic that's kind of difficult to, to cover because you know, I'm talking about firefighters in Germany during World War II. So we're talking about Nazi Germany here, yet firefighters in Berlin were showing the same 
courage, raw courage that firefighters in London were sh had sh uh, shown during the Blitz, you know, doing the same types of things, uh, just doing it for longer, uh, for a longer period of time, you know, but we also have to keep in mind and keep this in the back of your mind that we are still talking about Nazi Germany here. Um, I originally, I guess, part of me had thought that I would write a nonfiction book about all of this one day using my research, but that is not how it ended up. Um, I decided it would work better in fictional format, which is why it formed the basis, you know, years after I conducted those interviews, it formed the basis for my first novel, So Others May Live, which partially follows a firefighter in Berlin uh, in, in November 1943. So if you want to see kind of a, a fictional story, but also get a lot of history kind of mixed in with it and see it from two perspectives, because you'll see it from the perspective of a firefighter on the ground and a pilot and a British Lancaster flying over the city, then consider checking out the book so others may live. It's It doesn't suck, you know. Um, I mean, it, it won a few, war, a, a few awards and shit, and... You know, it's not, it's not, you know, I don't think it's going to be considered like the greatest book ever written or anything, but it's certainly not the worst, you know, so we'll say that. See, you can tell I suck at marketing, you know, the way I say that, but, um, but no, it actually is a, uh, it, it has gotten, it has been well received, I guess I should say, since it came out. It's available in ebook, paperback, hardback, and audiobook. And if you want a special treat, I would say get the audiobook because the narrator, that did it for me is stellar, but all right. So shameless self-promotion aside, uh, I guess I should probably move on. Uh, however, in, in moving on, you know, it is kind of hard to, for me to figure out where to start this story. So I figured the best way to start it is with a quote from the novel. So here's the quote war or no war. Carl thought we are still firemen in Berlin and still our city. There was a fire brigade before the war and before the Nazis and there will be a fire brigade long after both have faded into memory. We are firemen, and there's honor in that. And though they didn't say it in those exact words, I heard that sentiment echoed time and time again with the wartime firefighters that I had the privilege of, of speaking with. And as one of them told me, and this is a direct quote from him, as terrible as the war years were, there was no better time or place to be a fireman. Um, and this is someone that worked in Berlin. And a lot of the interviews I did were people who were working in Berlin just because that was the largest of the uh, fire brigades in Germany during the war. Actually, still is. But I guess that's probably the place to start. So the Berlin Fire Brigade was officially founded in 1851, and it is Germany's oldest and largest professional firefighting force. Um, by professional, just so we understand the terminology, um, by professional, that means career, meaning these are people that get paid to be firefighters as opposed to volunteer fire departments, which Germany also had and also has to this day, just not in Berlin. So by, uh, by 1876, the city had a telegraph fire alarm system. And if you want to know how that telegraph fire alarm system worked, go listen to my very first episode because I describe it in there. It worked the same way in the United States as it did in the UK or, or Great Britain or, uh, or Germany at the time. And by 1894, all of the city's fire stations were connected by telephone. Now, shortly after the turn of the century, 
the department began the slow process of converting from horse-drawn equipment to motorized, motorized apparatus. And in 1920, so a couple of years after World War I ends, uh, six cities and numerous smaller municipalities and, and manor districts were incorporated into uh, Greater Berlin, which would result in an expansion of the brigade, obviously, because now you're, you have, you're increasing the number of uh, your population and also the uh, square miles that you're protecting. So that's going to add to an expansion or cause a, an expansion of the brigade. When, um, when the late 20s, kind of early 30s roll around, Germany is a, is a whole, obviously, and, and, and Berlin, in, in, including the fire brigade, is going to undergo some big changes, uh, courtesy of the Nazi party and their rise to power. Um, obviously, I, I don't have time, though I could talk for hours and hours and hours about the whole process by which the Nazis came to be in charge of Germany. Um, that's not the surf. That's not really the the purpose of this podcast to get that information. You'd really need to be in one of my history classes at the at the college. But uh, suffice it to say that it's actually incorrect to say that the Nazis seized power in Germany. They did, but they used the electoral process. I mean, the Nazis were democratically elected. In the last free election, the last truly free election in Germany, the Nazis only got a third of the vote. That's it. It was enough to make them the uh, the majority party, meaning they had the most seats in the in uh, the Reichstag, but they did not constitute a majority of the electorate, if that makes sense. Um, they were a majority party, but didn't have the majority of seats. And even in uh, in 1933, when you had what really is not a free election because the Nazis were actively suppressing the vote in um, certain districts like Vetting and, and Berlin, which had a pretty sizable communist uh, population that lived there. Um, so they just weren't opening polls or uh, the, the brown shirts were chasing people away from voting in those locations. So that's not a free election. The Nazis still only got 40, uh, 42 to 43% of the vote. And that's in an unfree election. So, the important thing to kind of keep in mind, and the lesson for all of us in the future, and it's the same lesson I impart to my students, is you think, you know, because the Nazis came along and they did all of these horrible things, that they must have commanded a massive majority in the electorate. But that's not true. They, they never hit 50% in a free election and in in a in the last truly free election they only got a third of the votes cast so you don't have to have a 90% overwhelming majority to go out and do to to have the support you need to go to and do bad things what you really need isn't so much 90% of the people supporting you it's the majority of the people turning a blind eye to what's going on which is kind of what you would have happening in 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 Germany so in 1933 which is kind of the year that the Nazis are officially in power and they're not going to leave um, because of the Reichstag fire. So it's actually a fire that helps cement the Nazis' power. Um, a fire breaks out in the Reichstag, which is the German parliament building. Uh, the fire brigade in Berlin responds to it, uh, but the fire does a lot of damage. It basically guts the building. This was immediately blamed on the communists, who were the Nazis' big rival. 
um, as far as political parties go. And the Nazis saw an opportunity here because the Weimar Constitution, which Germany had been under from the end of World War One up through 1933, March of 33, had a provision in it which said that in the event of a national emergency, the uh, the German Reichstag, the parliament, could vote to more or less suspend all civil liberties for the duration of the emergency. So using the Reichstag fire as the excuse, the Nazis passed the Enabling Act, which gave Hitler, who was the chancellor, dictator-like powers. And it was supposed to be you know, temporary. That's the way it was worded in the Weimar Constitution. But of course, once somebody assumes dictator-like powers, it's going to be permanent. I mean, you, you give a government power that they're not supposed to have. They may tell you it's going to be temporary, but they never give it up. So also in 1933, you have a new commander for the Berlin Fire Brigade, uh, Gustav uh, Wagner. Well, Wagner technically, but we'll just call him Wagner because I'm American. So with this, um, he, he actually guaranteed that the fire brigade would be managed in the, quote, national socialist spirit. You know, the Nazi party wasn't actually called the Nazi party. It was called the National Socialist German Workers Party. Uh, don't make the mistake that it seems like so many people do and get fixated on the word socialist in there. Uh, the Nazi party was not a left-wing political party. It's that's a fascist party. Fascism is a reactionary right-wing political philosophy. Um, you know, if that's so why I say if if the Nazis were so socialist, why were their big enemies the communists? Now, originally there had been a key component in the Nazi Party that was fairly socialist in orientation, but by 1932, most of them had been driven out of the party. Um, and Hitler was very clear that the Nazi party adopted certain socialist rhetoric and also use of the color red for their swastika flag, you know, to appeal to the working class because among working class voters, the communists enjoyed a lot of support. So it was a way to woo people away from the communist party, not because the, the party necessarily had a left wing political philosophy because they certainly didn't. Um, so just kind of keep that in mind. And, you know, people, again, they, they fixate on the word socialist. There's a there's a quote that you often see people posting on Facebook about how socialist and left-wing the Nazi party was, and that, that quote is often mistakenly attributed to Hitler. Hitler didn't say that. Um, Otto Strasser said that. Uh, he was a prominent early Nazi in the 20s. But here's what happened to Otto Strasser. Uh, Strasser. Um, Hitler shut down his newspaper and the Nazis killed his brother. So this guy didn't have any pull in the party once Hitler decided that they were going to move away from all of that rhetoric. So um, again, if you think that just because you have a word in a name that that somehow implies what that country is, you know, the Democratic Republic of North Korea isn't overly democratic. Last time I checked, you know, um, a seahorse is not like an actual horse swimming in the water. Uh, shepherd's pie, you know, we you're not allowed to like eat people. Shepherd's pie is not made out of a shepherd, you know, um, you know that type of thing. So don't get fixated on what's in a name necessarily. But Strasser wanted to mold the fire brigade to look like uh, to, to to kind of mirror the way the Nazis wanted to organize the the, the country. 
his he, he would have the rank of major general. Um, his official title was commander of the, the, the Berlin Fire Brigade, but of course he does have the rank of, of major general. Um, he was almost immediately after he becomes the, the chief, the fire chief, because that's really what he is, he starts uh, preparing the the department or the brigade for the potential of a future war that involves air raids. So they're starting air raid preparations among the fire brigade in 1933-1934. Now the war doesn't start till 1939, but it's like he can see which direction it's headed, so to speak, like he knows what's coming. They would also combine all firefighting, medical services and rescue under one department um, or they're all kind of reporting to him and you would see an increasing uh, militarization i guess you can call it of the the berlin fire or the berlin fire brigade in particular by the mid-1930s now one of the other things that uh, wagner would do was he wanted to modernize the fleet of vehicles that they had in berlin and germany had several fire uh, actually quite a few uh, fire apparatus manufacturers before the start of the war. So they would replace um, 850 emergency vehicles, uh, not just in Berlin, but this also would be in a few other major German cities, Hamburg, Stuttgart, Cologne, and places like that. Um, he would try and increase the amount of uh, training that firefighters received, not just like before they came onto the job, but also like we call it like continuing ed stuff, ongoing training that they got while they were, while they were working. Eventually the Nazis would place uh, professional fire brigades in Germany. So the paid fire brigades, not the voluntary brigades under the authority of the police, they would create a, a national command structure for professional fire brigades. They would call them the Führerschutzpolizei, which roughly translates into fire protection police or fire extinguishing police. When they did this, the professional fire brigades in Germany, which is mostly your larger cities, they painted their fire trucks. Um, they were no longer red. They're now going to be a uh, dark green, uh, like a dark police green. Their official dress uniforms changed from blue with red facings to a dark green police style dress uniform. Uh, didn't Nothing really affected the way that they operated on a day-to-day -day basis. These were all kind of organizational changes. Um, at the top, though, that would change a little bit uh, more once we get into the very beginning of the war years. Now, even though Wagner was a, a member of the Nazi party, which is why he, he got, that, got the job as the, the fire chief, um, though that said, he was... A career firefighter in Berlin so it's not like the Nazis just grabbed some guy off the street and stuck him in there he actually was already a high-ranking member of the fire brigade but him being a member of the party particularly being a member of the party with a membership card that predated March of 1933 he's one of the the old guard if you will that's how or why he's going to be named to be chief um, you know he he was a member of the Nazi party but he did try, try to shield the fire brigade as best he could from some of the abuses, I guess you can say, of Nazism. So, for example, uh, in 1938, when we have Kristallnacht, the Night of Broken Glass, when 
crowds of people stirred up by brown shirts. I mean, they go out and they uh, break into Jewish businesses and they set Jewish businesses and synagogues on fire. Uh, Wagner was under immense pressure from the top, you know, from the Nazi government to order the Berlin Fire Brigade to stand down and not respond to calls involving fires in Jewish buildings or businesses. Uh, he refused to do that. And consequently, in Berlin, no directive was issued ordering the fire brigade to stand by. And so uh, as Jewish businesses and synagogues were being set on fire, the fire brigade was still responding. Now, in some cases, they were prevented from putting out the fires by crowds on the street. So all they could do would be stop, you know, uh, keep the, the fire from spreading to neighboring buildings. But in other cases on that night, they actually did go in and put the fire out like they would any other fire. Um, he would, uh, he would later issue a, a directive to the, the, uh, Berlin fire brigade that I'll, I'll quote from it here, but this is what his directive said, quote, the Fuhrerschutzpolizei, the firefighting police would, will not consider actions regarding the Jewish question. And we will continue to carry out our duties without restriction, meaning they're going to respond to calls like they always do. They don't really care who is calling. If someone needs help, they're going to respond and put out the fire. It's no different than firefighters do today. You know, we, we don't, we don't know when we respond to a call necessarily anything about the person that's calling. Um, we, our job is to help people period. doesn't matter what color they are, their socioeconomic status, you know, whatever. Um, you know, I, it doesn't matter if, if you have an unconscious person, no pulse, not breathing. It doesn't matter if she is a drug addicted prostitute or the mayor's wife, she gets treated the same way. That's how I ran my company. Um, it's one of those very, very important to me that we didn't distinguish between anyone. We helped everyone. Um, but that is something that's kind of universal in the fire service. I mean, you do see that. So it is interesting to see that reflected even in, even in Nazi Germany. So, um, eventually in the early years of the war, uh, they would, before air raids got really heavy, they would do some more reorganization and put things again along a more military structure. Um, instead of just having individual companies that would respond to calls like an engine company or ladder company, they grouped units together and created platoons. So say in Berlin, a firefighting platoon would be one or two engine companies, a ladder company and uh, an ambulance. And the, the platoon would respond together to calls. So again, it's something a little different um, than what they had seen, you know, uh, what they had seen before the war. Now with um, Wagner, ultimately he ends up, uh, during the middle of the war resigning from his, from his post, because he got, again, got crossways with the Nazis here. Um, in August of 1942, the government mandated that firefighters receive, uh, professional firefighters in Germany receive infantry training. Um, he resisted implementing that and actually he protested it and resisted implementing it, uh, in Berlin. And I know from, firefighters that I interviewed, most of them said that they never received infantry training, that, that at some point that it was one of those things that, yeah, we're supposed to, but by the time that order was implemented, 
with the increasing frequency of air raids, there just wasn't any time to do it. Um, and kind of the last straw for Wagner was when, in the summer of 1943, the Nazi government mandated that uh, professional firefighters were to carry sidearms. They are to carry handguns uh, at all times. That's not a good idea for a variety of reasons, but um, even today. But in this particular case, um, remember, Wagner wants the brigade to be separate from He wants them to be basically as non-political as they can be. Uh, having Adding handguns to the mix doesn't fit that image. And plus, it's kind of stupid to go into a burning building wearing a handgun with live ammunition in it. There's any number of reasons why that's not a good idea. So he would also resist implementing that. Um, but eventually he got so tired of, of trying to be the buffer, I guess you can say, that he, he resigned at the end of 1943 when he was about 63 years old. Um, so when he, when he resigns, um, in a way, like, I can understand because he's frustrated. You know, he's trying to run interference between the top Nazis and his fire brigade. But by the same token, it's like now you resign and you're throwing your fire brigade under the bus. So did the professional firefighters in, in Germany, were they carrying handguns with them? Not really. Um, again, with interviews that I conducted, and also I have never seen a photograph of uh, firefighters actively engaged in, in putting out fires in Berlin during World War II with any of them wearing handguns. Um, at the very, very end, in like April of 1945, the remaining firefighters in Berlin were issued rifles and told, you have to defend your station from the Russians, but that's it. Like, they weren't routinely carrying handguns with them, even though officially that's what the, um, the order said. Now, the next commander of the, the fire brigade uh, that would take over after Wagner which retired, or resigned, I guess I should say, was a, a little bit more of a, um, a little more of a dedicated Nazi. But he's also, he's also a really interesting figure because he kind of, he kind of, uh, though partially a committed Nazi, also ended up being a, a victim of the Nazis, if that makes sense. Uh, you know, the Nazis would eventually kill him. So, uh, he would be executed towards the end of the war. So it's kind of a, he's, he's an interesting case. Um, but basically, he would, by, by the time he takes over at the end of 1943, this is in the middle of the aerial battle of Berlin, not the battle of Berlin on the ground between the Russians, but the aerial battle of Berlin. And that's sucking up all the brigade's attention. And, and that just continues all the way to the end of the war. So he doesn't have as much of a, a, uh, as much of a, imprint on the brigade as Wagner did. But at the very end of the war, towards the very end of the war, uh, April 22nd, 1945, and I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself here, but it, since I'm talking about him, I want to go ahead and, and say what happened to him. Um, he will order the evacuation of all remaining fire trucks left in Berlin. There's over 100 vehicles and their crews, um, ordering them out of the city. At this point, you know, Berlin had 35 fire stations, but, uh, his reason is a, he has a couple of different reasons. First of all, the Russians are about to, to encircle the city, cut them off, cut, cut the city completely off. No one can get in and out. Um, 
So he wants to get the remaining fire trucks out of the city, but he also wants to evacuate the female auxiliary firefighters um, out of the city before the Russians have it completely surrounded. Um, if you know anything about the fighting on the Eastern Front during World War II, uh, you know that the, the Russian military used uh, sexual assault as a weapon of war. Uh, the Red Army did. You know, over a million German women were sexually assaulted in the aftermath of World War II in areas that the, the Russians were overrunning. Um, and when I say women, I mean that term loosely because we're talking girls as young as 9 or 10 years old. So, again, they wanted the female auxiliaries out of the city um, before the Russians got there. Now, that said, not all uh, Berlin firefighters left. There uh, Some of them volunteered to stay and remain on duty in those four remaining fire stations. Um, and I'll talk about what happened with them here in a little bit. But because he ordered the fire brigade out at a time in which Hitler said no one is allowed to leave Berlin, he would be considered a, you know, a defeatist, if you will. So he was sentenced to death in absentia by a uh, German court-martial. Um, but then he ends up going back into Berlin and would, it's kind of a long story short, but ultimately he's shot uh, by, uh, I can't remember if it's the police or the military, I think it was the police, um, about five days before the city of Berlin surrendered. Um, you know, while it is true that, you know, he ordered the evacuation of the fire brigade, but in so doing, he probably saved the lives of hundreds of auxiliary firefighters um, from either death or deportation to, to, to Russian um, POW camps. And those surviving trucks did end up going back into the city after the Battle of Berlin and would, would form the basis for the rebuilding of the Berlin fire brigade as well. Um, had, they, had those trucks stayed there, they all would have been destroyed. So, um, you know, it's kind of one of those, one of those things like, you know, as a hero or villain, but it's also worth noting though, that, um, that, uh, Goldbach was a, also not only was he a, a Nazi official, but he also was a member of the SS. So his isn't a clear cut case of, well, here you have someone that's resisting the Nazis. And so they have him shot. Here's a guy that's a member of the SS, high ranking member of the SS. And he's all fine with the Nazis up until he decides he's not, you know, and it's like right at the end of the war. But as far as the firefighting part of it, uh, what he did ordering those remaining trucks out of the city um, really did save lives in Berlin in the long run. Uh, not just did it save the mostly auxiliary fire personnel that evacuated with the trucks, did it save their lives, but because the trucks were saved and they're going to help rebuild the Berlin Fire Brigade after the war, the existence of those trucks and having saved those trucks would save lives in the future too. So his is kind of a, it's kind of a complicated case, you know, and it's like, well, you do a bunch of bad stuff in your life, but you do one really good thing right at the end. Does the one good thing outweigh all of the bad? That's not really my, my call to make. Um, you know, that's all, all I do is, is tell you the facts. I mean, here's a guy that was in the SS and, but he did make a humanitarian decision right at the very end of his life. And before we talk about what it was like on the ground during these raids, I want to take a minute to talk about what it was like in the air and also some of the technology used to combat uh, or and track uh, enemy movements, if you will. World War II was not the first war in which civilian populations were bombed. That would actually be World War I. Um, 
However, in World War One, bombing raids over cities like the Zeppelin raids over London, for example, were much, much smaller in, in scale and more limited in scope and did nowhere near the damage that we would see done to cities during World War II. Um, that's one of the reasons why, of course, they say that World War One is the first you know, mechanized, you know, war, and it really would kind of change the way that European countries looked at warfare. You know, prior to World War One, wars tended to be fought by, you know, smaller professional armies for limited objectives. Once we get into World War One, this is something that actually Winston Churchill, of all people, had predicted uh, prior to World War One. He said that the wars of the people, the wars of democracies, will be more terrible than the wars of kings. And what he meant by that was when you see industrialized warfare in the 20th century, it's no longer this army fighting that army. It's this society fighting that society. And as part of that, it means that the entire society, including the civilian population, are fair game. So this is why you will see cities being bombed during World War II. Um, and it was for, you know, for, for slightly different reasons. You know, um, the, the Germans, when the war started, of course, uh, tried to bomb Warsaw into submission um, for, I think, uh, Warsaw held out for two or three weeks against uh, frequent you know, artillery and also airstrikes. During that entire time, it's to me kind of a cool story, the, um, the uh, Polish national radio station played the Polish national anthem continuously 24 hours a day on the air in the midst of all of this. The Warsaw uh, Fire Brigade was, uh, during those you know few weeks in September 1939, were responding to over 300 fires a day um, caused by <clears throat> bombings. They also lost a few dozen firefighters uh, killed in action and, and quite a few more that were injured. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. The uh, Germans would also bomb Rotterdam in the Netherlands. Uh, that was kind of one of the first real big firebombing kind of raids, uh, doing quite a bit of damage. And then, of course, when we get to the Battle of Britain, um, initially the German goal was to defeat the Royal Air Force. <clears throat> but um, and it's kind of it's kind of a long, complicated story. But basically, in the midst of all of this, um, I. German bomber, German bombers flying over London are supposed to be bombing the London docks, accidentally dropped their bombs in a civilian neighborhood. So the British re retaliated with a very small air raid over Berlin, which really pissed Hitler off. And so he said, you know, we're going to burn their cities to the ground, basically. So then you see, uh, see the German bombing style over Great Britain switch from targeting airfields and industrial targets to simply indiscriminately bombing cities at one point um you know london was bombed i think over 40 consecutive nights and then you know more or less continuously from sep uh, september 1940 until may of 1941 and then sporadically you know thereafter but not just london i mean a lot of people focus on london just because it's well i mean it's london you know it's the center of the british empire at the time but other British cities were also bombed. Um, Manchester, Liverpool, of course, Coventry, uh, the big firebombing raid on Coventry. Um, the Germans bombed Belfast over a period of several days in, in the north of Ireland. 
incidentally, uh, we just passed the anniversary of the Bel- what's called the Belfast Blitz. And what's interesting in that case is uh, when the Germans bombed Belfast, the Irish Free State, which you know today the Republic of Ireland, but at the time it was Irish Free State, was officially neutral. Yet they sent, um, they asked for firefighters to volunteer to go to Belfast to work to help during the Blitz because this happened over the course of several nights, and uh, everyone, almost like universally, all the one people who were asked to to, to volunteer, uh, stepped forward to to go, uh, even though they didn't have to because their country was officially neutral. You know, and at one point uh, the Germans actually mistakenly bombed Dublin, even uh, even though the Irish Free State was officially neutral. Now the Germans did apologize for that, but uh, you know, just goes to show you mistakes can happen like that during wartime. So, um, the Germans, the whole point in these night bombing raids over British cities was to break the morale of the British people. What they hoped was that the, the, um, these bombing raids, you know, it's basically this terror bombing, it's bombing to instill fear in, in the population, would cause the British public to put pressure on their government to negotiate an end to the war. Like, that, that was their goal. What the Germans found was that it, not only did it not work, but it backfired in a big way. Instead of causing people to put pressure on their government to get out of the war, it brought the British people together um, in a way that uh, nothing else before this had done. Um, because everybody now faced this the, the, the chance of you know indiscriminate death from the air, if you will, um, at one point, the Germans actually, even though the grounds of Buckingham Palace itself was officially off limits uh, to the German Luftwaffe, they were not supposed to drop bombs in that vicinity. They accidentally did one night and did a little bit of damage, and um, which led the Queen of England at the time to say, to make a comment that now I can look an East Ender in the face, uh, because most of the German bombs were falling on the East End of London, which happened to be one of the most densely populated parts of London, also the poorest. So again, it's disproportionately affecting the poor. Um, you know, the British, even today, when something bad happens, the British will still invoke what they call the, the blitz spirit. You know, we got through the blitz, we can get through anything. And it just goes to show you that that German tactic backfired. But here's what I still have a difficult time wrapping my head around. You know, the the British would then attempt to do the very same thing to the Germans. And not only would they attempt to do the very same thing to the Germans, <clears throat> they would be better at it, I guess you can say, because German cities were bombed over a far longer period and far heavier. Um, by the end of the war, every German city with a population of over 20,000 people had been bombed at least once, and most of your German cities were 70, 80, 90% rubble uh, <clears throat> when the war ended. Most of that due to air raids. So <clears throat> the, uh, the British would try to break the morale of the German people. And whereas you have about 60,000 British civilians killed in German air raids, and then also later V1 and V2 attacks during the war, 10 times as many German civilians were killed in air raids, uh, over 600,000. And the British trying to break the morale of the German people, that didn't work either, uh, any more than it worked. It worked when the Germans tried to do it to the British. Um, so it's like that's odd. Like it, you did, you didn't. Your morale didn't break. So why do you think theirs would? When <clears throat> essentially, you know, you're doing the same thing, expecting different results. It's just not going to work. Um, <clears throat> so 
the uh, when the war first begins, air raids are a little more limited just because the technology would advance as, of course, as the war goes on. Um, <clears throat> by the time we get into 1942, um, <clears throat> early 1943, we're seeing what's called the Battle of the Ruhr, where uh, <clears throat> excuse me, British bombers are focusing on the um, the Ruhr Valley, which is the, the kind of industrial heart of Germany, even though it's not really in the heart. It's more in the western part of Germany, but regardless, um, where a lot of Germany's heavy industry is, trying to knock out those industries. Now, the British would bomb at night. The Americans, once the Americans entered the war, would bomb by day. <clears throat> the difference is the Americans had the Norden bomb site, which allowed them to bomb a little more accurately. Uh, and, you know, it is true to an extent that the uh, U.S. Army Air Corps, we didn't actually have an Air Force at the time, but the U.S. Army Air Corps <clears throat> would focus on bombing industrial and military targets, where at, you know, factories, uh, shipyards, that type of thing. Whereas the British, just like, fuck it, we're dropping in the middle of the city. Um, however, it's also true that at times the U.S. Army Air Corps did kind of bomb ran indiscriminately, randomly. Um, and nobody really batted an eye about it at the time. And most of the ordnance that American bombers were dropping were high explosives. They did drop incendiaries as well. Uh, just not as many as the British were dropping at the same time. Um, and, you know, in case you think that, well, you know, the, the, uh, that somehow gives the U.S. Army Air Corps some kind of moral high ground over RAF Bomber Command, we, as a country, United States had no, no hesitation about bombing indiscriminately. Uh, look at what we did in the Pacific Theater. I mean, we firebombed the living shit out of Tokyo. Um, you know, killed over 100,000 people in a single night uh, in, I believe, Mar February or March of 1945. It's still the deadliest air raid in human history, and that's not the atomic bombs. Uh, th th those came later. So, no, the United States didn't have any moral hesitation about doing that either. Um, but, again, because most of the incendiary raids were happening at night, that's kind of what I'm going to focus on as far as the, the firefighting element goes. Um, British bombers, the, the standard British bomber payload, um, kind of their normal, normal uh, payload on a on a night bombing raid over Germany would consist of one four thousand pound high explosive bomb, uh, which they nicknamed a cookie, and twelve small bomb canisters. Uh, what these were incendiary canisters, which carried a total of about twenty eight hundred incendiary bomblets in them. But basically, when those uh, containers hit the ground, they'd spray these incendiaries everywhere. It's like little glowing balls of, of fire, if you will. Uh, they also had another type of incendiary that actually would uh, come down by parachute um, as well. And there was different types of incendiaries used. Some of them were thermite-based. Um, some of them were uh, phosphorus-based. Some were more of like a napalm, a, a um, jelly petroleum base. Uh and the purpose of uh, these bombing raids, these night bombing raids, the British uh, RAF Bomber Command would say that their their goal was to, quote, de-house the German workers. Uh, basically burn all the houses, and then the workers don't have anywhere to live. Okay, that's kind of their, their mindset. Um, the uh, head of RAF Bomber Command... General Harris would, would make a comment um, during the middle of the Blitz. He would say, 
they have they meaning the germans they have sown the wind and they shall reap the whirlwind um, later you know at one point he was uh he was pulled over for speeding you know, on his way uh, back into london one night and the the young police officer recognized him and said you know general harris you need to to slow down you you uh could kill someone you know traveling at, at that speed and general harris's reply was young man i killed thousands of people a night and this was a a kind of a cold cruel calculus of war uh they had a certain percentage of high explosive uh, ordinance to incendiary ordinance the high explosive ordinance opens up the houses the incendiary sets stuff on fire and that's that's kind of the purpose uh, also the high explosives create rubble in the streets which hinders fire and rescue personnel and in fact they would also drop delayed ordnance bombs that were specifically intended to kill fire and rescue personnel uh, firefighters were considered legitimate wartime targets um, and not just that but of course you never want the enemy to know directly where you're headed and so these uh, RAF bomber streams would have a lot of feints dog legs as they came into a target it wasn't uncommon for one wave to pass over and there'd be a delay of 30 to 45 minutes before a follow-up wave comes over and drops more bombs and again that was specifically to kill fire and rescue personnel that were out working during the middle of the raid so again it's just a uh, it's just a, a a cruel calculus of war if you will um, flying at night of course visibility can be difficult at this time the british would develop a uh, ground reading radar it's h2s radar uh, <clears throat> that allowed them to follow uh, rivers on the ground which for a city like berlin that has a lot of rivers you know that it's difficult for um or easy for them to to be able to, to find that target uh however the frequencies that these radars operated on could be intercepted by german night fighters and so they had to kind of use those use it sparingly um as they approached a target your pathfinder bombers would drop uh red and green flares in a box pattern in the sky uh, the germans on the ground referred to those as christmas trees and then the bomber streams would fly over and drop in the center of that pattern um in the center of that flare pattern as simple as that um with i mean they're not dropping on a particular place uh on a particular spot in the ground they're dropping in the middle of this pattern the idea being the more ordnance you can dump in a limited area the more likely you are to create a firestorm which is essentially a, a tornado of fire burning in the middle of the city um, on the ground the germans would fire off dummy flares trying to bait the bombers to drop outside of uh, outside of the um, the actual target area and in berlin or just outside of berlin they actually built a full-size replica of the miniature replica of the city to try and tempt bombers to drop on the fake city versus uh the real one um, making it basically look on the ground similar on their um radar bombsite stuff as it would look in the sky of course it didn't really work but they they tried um at least now the germans on the other hand um you know of course they had their radar installations that could pick up bombers as they were taking off their long-range uh, Freya radars which were operating along the Dutch and Belgian coast but as soon as enemy bombers in inner German airspace the uh, ra uh, radio stations in Germany would go off the air 
Why? Because they could hone in on those radio signals to uh, to come to to define their targets. So instead, the Germans invented a um, nifty little piece of technology. You you had a if you lived in Germany at the time, you had a little receiver set that you plugged into your radio. <clears throat> Anytime there were uh, enemy bombers over German airspace that receiver set would emit a ticking sound make it sound like a sound like a clock you know that's what you heard at the very beginning you know the intro that tick 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 hearing that made you kind of clue in hey i need to pay attention to uh any air raid alerts so um you could then uh you actually could then plug your receiver set into the phone jack on the wall and then transmitted through the phone lines you could hear radio transmissions um coming through the phone lines so what, what i mean is uh, these uh, it was called a flax cinder radio but uh, your receiver set had two channels on one channel was the air defense channel where you could listen to uh official air raid alerts air raid notifications uh, this is when they would tell you where the enemy bomber streams were approaching, um, what targets they thought they might be hitting that night. You know, uh, there was a spot basically once, um, uh, like if you lived in Berlin, once bombers passed a certain point, then you knew Berlin was the target, you know, for example. Um, <clears throat> but it's also possible the bombers could turn away at the last minute and hit somewhere else, you know. Uh, so that was one channel. It's like your official air raid alerts. You had another channel where you could listen to the, um, say if the bombers were actually bombing your your city, you could listen to the radar controllers talking back and forth with the uh, flak operators, flak batteries being the anti-aircraft batteries, you know, these big 88 millimeter guns, you know, firing vertically into the air. Um, <clears throat> you could hear them um, giving those, radar direction um, directions to their gun operators telling them you know estimated height speed etc of approaching aircraft um, then you could also listen to uh, radar controllers on the ground talking to night fighters German night fighters kind of patrolling the sky looking for German aircraft uh, you could hear them vectoring these planes to an intercept point um, and you know it was almost like a uh like you were listening to a um it sounds like you're listening to to radio coverage of a chess match basically because uh planes are moving you know both sets of planes are moving they're trying to direct steer these night fighters to a spot in the sky where the bomber will be by the time the plane gets there by the time the night fighter gets there you know that kind of thing and you're listening for uh if you're of course if you're listening to that at home uh, what you're listening for was to hear the night fighter pilot say kettle drum, kettle drum. That meant that he had a visual on a bomber um, and was lining up to make an attack run. You know, so it's really kind of, uh, kind of nerve-wracking stuff. But it's very similar to, you know, during the, 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 uh, the Battle of Britain and then later the Blitz, you know, Londoners in their basements could listen on the radio to, you know, live coverage of what it looked like, you know, outside on the ground. Um but just to give you an idea of how how 
deadly this was for all parties involved. About half of all uh, RAF Bomber Command uh, crewmen were killed in action uh, during the war, and that doesn't, or died in training accidents, and that doesn't count the ones that were injured or taken prisoner. So uh, they had very, very, very heavy losses. And again, most of these were young men, you know, 18, 19, 20 years old. Um, just to give you kind of a, a little bit of a glimpse of it, uh, from, from their side of, uh, of the table or from their part of the sky, I'm going to let you listen in to, um, a little bit of radio communications. This is, uh, this is actual, an actual recording of uh, crew communications on a Lancaster bomber, um, on a raid over, uh, over Berlin. So you can listen in here. So that's just a, like I said, a little little taste of uh, uh, of what they were experiencing in, in the sky. I'm gonna put in the the podcast notes, the the show notes, uh, a link to. It's about a 18 minute or so uh, radio uh, broadcast by Edward R. Murrow, kind of the famed uh, American uh, radio correspondent during the war, uh, where he's describing um, in December, early December of 1943, he accompanied. Uh, the crew of a, a British Lancaster on a night raid over Berlin, and it's him uh, giving the report of, of what that experience was like. And incidentally, there were multiple correspondents that went on that raid. He was the only one that came back. Uh, and so it's a really it's it's one of those things that as you listen to it, of course, it's radio. And this is again one of the reasons why I prefer radio to television. Um, he paints such a he paints such a vivid picture that you can see it in your head. And like, if we still had journalists like that, we wouldn't need television because you can see it happening just by, by the descriptions that he gave. So I'll put that link in the, in the uh, podcast notes. Incidentally, I actually have a relative who uh, was on that very raid and, uh, in uh, RAF bomber command and, and, and is officially still listed as failed to return, uh, never came back, but, uh, no one knows exactly what happened to him, um, other than they, they, didn't come back from the raid. So, um, now on the ground, as you can imagine, uh, early in the war, the, the Germans people were expecting that of course air raids would come and, and they did. 
it just it took a little while for them to get um, really, really bad, if, if you know what I mean. So uh, they had, um, there was a whole host of air raid laws passed. Uh, German cities had public shelters. Uh, then, you know, different like apartment buildings would have their own shelters, uh, you know, the private shelters. And generally, if you were living in a German city, you would have, um, if aircraft were, enemy aircraft were approaching, air raid sirens would go off about 30 minutes prior to their expected arrival. They would go off again about 15 minutes prior. And then what I call the oh shit warning, which is about five minutes prior, uh, you would hear them again. Um, and that was like your last warning, get below ground now. Um, as I said, there were plenty of public shelters. Uh, in uh, Berlin, for example, you have the Zoo Flak Tower, which could accommodate up to 15,000 people. Um, and it was this massive concrete tower. They had a fully functioning hospital inside of it. It was, a, again, a public air raid shelter. They had um, anti-aircraft batteries on the roof, you know, et cetera. So, and it actually survived the war um, because it was such, you know, kind of solid construction. It was kind of right in the center of, of, uh, of Berlin. The firefighters, on the other hand, um, they really can't just go below ground and uh, wait for the raid to end. So they they had built their own air raid shelters in their fire stations. And when um, when the war started, Berlin had about 1,800 professional firefighters and about 35 fire stations. That's not too different than London. Uh, when the war started, London had about 2,000 professional firefighters. Um, both London and Berlin would make heavy use of auxiliary firefighters. In uh, the UK, they created the whole uh, auxiliary fire service, which employed or had up to, I think, 100,000 people in it, uh, men and women. The same would be true in Germany, as uh, especially as the war went on and the army sucked up more and more of the available manpower. Um, a lot of the firefighting would be done by 15, 16-year-old Hitler youth boys who received special, well, I say special, they received training in firefighting, albeit of a very limited nature and as part of that they got to wear a uh, they got to sew a, a special fire protection patch under their uniform but you also have the use of young women in germany uh, women 17 18 19 20 years old who were um, given a two-week training course and then deployed to fire stations and what they did was their job was to basically supplement the professional fire brigades so they were kind of like embedded alongside professional firefighters, if that makes sense. So they weren't like at their own stations or anything. Um, but Germany had multiple tiers of fire protection. Uh, you had, of course, the Führerschutzpolizei, the professional firefighting force in Germany. Um, these were your your firefighters who, had, who did this for a living. Uh, most of them had done it for a living even before the war. Then you had um, your industrial fire brigades. Most of your major factories in Germany had their own on-site firefighting forces. Very similar, really, today to how, you know, here in the United States, your large refineries also have their own firefighting force. Um, you had military firefighters in Germany. Uh, the Luftwaffe, in, in, uh, for example, had its own firefighting force. And those uh, military firefighting trucks were also deployed in German cities as well uh, to supplement, again, your professional fire brigades. The Army had several... Uh, Führerschutzpolizei battalions, 
which were made up of professional firefighters, but they were uh, their job was to provide fire protection in occupied territories. So, um, once the Germans say took over a city, their own people would come in and take over as the firefighting force, with a few exceptions. Uh, your larger cities, like Warsaw, for example, a lot of the professional firefighters in Warsaw before the war. Uh, stayed and were still working as firefighters during the German occupation alongside some German firefighters, the same as the case, uh, same as true in Paris. And then, of course, these army firefighting battalions provided protection for army bases, army installations, you know, et cetera. Then you also had, um, you also had conscript labor. As, remember, as the Germans would overrun areas, um, you know, they would forcibly conscript people into these labor battalions that were forced to do work basically for um on behalf of 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 the german military so they also put together um firefighting crews made up of foreign conscript labor like in berlin for example you had quite a few ukrainian uh firefighting crews uh that were against there to supplement the existing firefighting structure now, I don't know if those individuals were, you know, actually had been firefighters and say in Kiev or something or not. I, I don't know. Um, I don't know if it was just like random Ukrainian people that had a little bit of firefighting training, but they were also deployed in German cities. Um, the first kind of real taste of what was to come for the German people uh, was when the city of Cologne was bombed uh, by the, the uh, Royal Air Force. It was the first of the thou- what's called the Thousand Bomber Raids, where you had almost a thousand bombers and a bomber stream dropping over the city. And that's when people kind of scratched their head and were like, oh, you know, holy shit, you know, this is going to get really bad. But then it really hit home in July of 1943, when the city of Hamburg, which is kind of Germany, a big major industrial city in Germany at the time, particularly for shipping, you know, um, faced almost a week of round-the-clock air raids, uh, where the Americans are coming over by day, the British coming over by night. Um, and what was, uh, what the, the, uh, British and Americans referred to as operation Gomorrah. Now, if you, if you, uh, know your, your old Testament, then you can see the significance of why they called it that, you know, the, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah were, just uh, according to the Old Testament, God destroyed them with fire. So when you nickname your bombing raid over a city, Operation Gomorrah, uh, you can kind of see what they're, you know, what the purpose of this raid was. I mean, by what they're calling it. So, um, so again, it was a, it was a duel, like round the clock air raids, British by night, Americans by day. Um, this was also the first time that the British would use, uh, what they called window, which was actually, um, involved dropping aluminum foil, uh, strips of aluminum foil to, uh, confuse German radar. Now it, it was kind of a hot and dry summer and there were some kind of stronger winds at the time. And so it was, it was almost, and plus Hamburg was a very old city with a lot of, especially in the middle part of town, these densely packed old style German houses with wooden roofs, you know? Um, so once the, uh, once the raid started, they redeployed firefighters from all over Germany to assist the Hamburg fire brigade. They would operate in the city during the day, 
but at night, um, because outside of your major cities, most of the fire protection in Germany at that time was volunteer. So at night, the volunteer or what they called voluntary fire brigade, um, those brigades were pulled out of the city and only the Hamburg and Berlin uh, firefighters remained in the city of Hamburg at night during the, the, uh, the British raids. So all told, they deploy something like 40,000 firefighters into the Hamburg area uh, during the course of this, of this week. Well, the big raid happened on the night of July 27th. About 787 um, Royal Air Force aircraft uh, would bomb Hamburg. Their aiming points were these dense uh, working class districts in the city. And again, it's kind of unusually hot and, and, uh, and dry weather. Plus, the damage done in previous raids left so much rubble in the streets that... Um, that the firefighting crews had a hard time even reaching areas where they were needed. Hey, um, <clears throat> and then in the midst of all of this, um, crews from Hanover, Germany, fire crews from Hanover were recalled along uh, back to their own city along with a, a, a few others. So what basically ends up happening is you have a firestorm created in Hamburg. Uh, we're talking a, a massive fire tornado uh, temperatures of almost 1500 degrees Fahrenheit with a, a, um, a flame plume that reached over a thousand feet in the sky. And remember fire behaves the same way. It doesn't matter if it's a candle or if it's a big fire tornado, it draws in air oxygen at the base. Well, because this fire was so big, it was sucking in oxygen um, at the, the wind speeds were clocked at about 150 miles an hour, sucking into this big fire tornado. Um, it, just, um, it, it would, it would completely incinerate about 21 square miles of the city. Um, or sorry, square kilometers, eight square miles of the city. Um, all told somewhere around 45,000 people or so die uh civilians were killed during the 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 whole duration of operation gomorrah somewhere around twenty thousand or so of those were killed on this night and when i say on this night it's really just in a matter of hours um it's not even like it's it's all night you know um just to uh just to kind of give you an idea of of what this was like um I, I once talked to a, a Lancaster crewman who was a pilot on a uh, <clears throat> Royal Air Force Lancaster. It was flying over Hamburg. Uh, he was <clears throat> coming in on one of the follow-up waves on that night. And he said as they were approaching the city, at like he's flying at like, I don't know, 15,000, 16,000 feet. He said he could smell something in the cockpit of, uh, of his bomber. And his mind's like trying to place that smell and he realized what he was smelling was burning flesh, 16,000 feet in the air. You know, so you can imagine how horrific it must have been on the ground. Um, there are photographs, of course, of the aftermath of this raid. Um, most of your, uh, well, in other raids, uh, there was a German book that came out uh, several years ago that consists of a lot of never-before-seen photographs that were taken in the aftermath of air raids. Um, I have a copy of it. The book's in German. It's not in English. It's not ever been published in the UK or the United States, uh, probably because 
people don't want to kind of look at their handiwork, I guess, if you will, because uh, it's a lot of photographs of dead women, dead children, babies that have burned up in their cribs, you know, that kind of thing. Um, now, <clears throat> bombs can kill people in different ways. <clears throat> you have, of course, high explosive bombs. You have the shrapnel injuries, um, of course, that can, you know, sometimes, you know, blow off limbs, you know, et cetera. People can die from what's called blast lung, where they don't have an outward mark on them, but the pressure wave of the blast ruptures their internal organs. Um, also, in these firebombing raids, you have fires that are burning above ground that are large enough. People underground in air raid shelters will die of carbon monoxide poisoning. And, um, you know, hearing, you know, German firefighters describe to me what that looks like, you know, and I mean, I have seen... Unfortunately, in my career, I've seen people deceased from carbon monoxide poisoning, but I'm talking like two people in a house, not a hundred people in an air raid shelter. But it's like they go in uh, and, and you know, shine their flashlights around and yell at people to come out of the shelter, and it looks like they're all asleep. You know, and then they realize because their faces have that kind of rosy, cherry-ish look that victims of carbon monoxide poisoning have, that they're all dead. You know, um, <clears throat> so... And it's 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 just a it's just a nasty business, and if anything, it kind of reinforces that um, you know these stories kind of reinforce that war is not a game. You know, uh, it's not a it's not a video game, and even coverage we see of it on TV is is heavily heavily sanitized versus how it looks to the people that are that are actually there. Um, the uh, firefighting forces in Hamburg uh, did suffer pretty heavily uh, during this raid. Um, one firefighter told me a story that did make its way into that made its way into my novel you know so others may live where he's talking about uh he saw a um uh, one of those little glowing incendiary balls landed on um the leg of another firefighter and um the way these incendiaries worked was you could not extinguish them with water like if you threw water on it, it would go out, but it would start right back up again. Um, you could, so you had to put them out with by dousing with sand or something similar. So and, and if it landed on on flesh, it would just burn all the way through. So like if it if it landed on the right side of your leg, it's going to burn all the way through and come out the left side. So it lands on his on his right thigh. And so the person that's relating the story, the firefighter that saw this happen, is relating it to me. He says this other firefighter takes a knife sticks it into the meat of his leg, cuts it in a circle, and then uses it to pop out the burning uh, flesh that's being burned by this uh, little ball of incendiary. And then he stuffs a rag inside the hole in his leg and keeps and goes back, you know, keeps working. So I ask the person, you know, what happened, uh, well, what happened to this guy later, you know, um, after it was all said and done, and uh, the firefighter told me, he said, well, he said, I walked, um, he said, my, I guess, like his company commander, uh, which we today, like his captain, uh, called me over to the, uh, down the street. So I walked away and he said, this was kind of in the middle of the raid. And he said, as I walked away, um, a bomb hit uh, just on the other side of the fire truck where the other people were and killed the guy that had, um, you know, the dug the burning flesh out of his leg. Um, so it's just kind of one of those 
stories. And, and I think that does illustrate the point. Just like in London, you know, the firefighters in London during the Blitz weren't waiting in their fire stations for the raids to be over. They were going out in the middle of them because you can't, the, you're trying to stop a firestorm. You have to tackle these fires as they're being started. You can't wait. So that puts you out in the open above ground during the air raids. Well, German firefighters are doing the same thing. Uh, they're trying to go out and do their jobs in the middle of these air raids while bombs are falling all around them. Um, and of course, suffering pretty heavy casualties in the, in the course of their course of their duties. Um, now we can travel back to, back to Berlin and we'll kind of finish, we'll spend the rest of the story with Berlin specific stuff. Um, in August of 1943, so just about, about a month after Operation Gomorrah, RAF Bomber Command decided to switch focus and target Berlin. Now, Berlin had been bombed earlier as well, but these weren't like heavy, heavy raids. The heavy raids would last from a period of time from like the middle of August to the middle of September. Then there'd be a lull, and then they'd start back up again in, um, in November. And from November, they'd run pretty much straight through till March, because in March of 44 is when the U.S. Army Air Corps had its first daylight raids over Berlin. So that whole period is referred to as the Battle of Berlin, not to be confused with the Battle of Berlin at the end of the war between the Russians and the Germans on the ground. So this is like the aerial, aerial Battle of Berlin. Um, the uh, bomber command had hoped that they could start the same kind of firestorms that they had started in Cologne and Hamburg, that they could start those over Berlin. Uh, it never quite worked out that way. And there's different reasons why, but they weren't quite able to do that kind of, uh, they did a lot of damage, of course, bombing Berlin, but not firestorm type damage, um, if, if that makes sense. Um, just because, I mean, there's a lot of reasons for it that really need not detain us here, but part of it is because, you know, Berlin was the most heavily defended city in Germany. Uh, with a flak belt that stretched about 100 miles across uh, rings of uh, anti-aircraft batteries. And, of course, Berlin had the best fire protection in Germany because it is, of course, you know, the, the German capital. Um, my novel covers specifically one raid that happened on the night of uh, November 22nd of 1943. That was one of the heavier raids on Berlin of the entire war and actually one of the ones that did the most damage. Um, something like a hundred thousand people are left homeless, uh, several thousand killed is part of this, um, area is kind of West of the city center, uh, were hit the hardest, um, particularly Charlottenburg, um, and also the Berlin zoo, the kind of world famous Berlin zoo was hit. Um, and it's really one of those kind of tragic stories, uh, that many of the animals in the Berlin zoo um, unfortunately, uh, burned alive in their cages, you know, during the course of the, um, during the course of the attack. Um, and, and it is, uh, I remember one, one Berlin firefighter told me that, um, and this individual was, you know, he was a, a, uh, a professional firefighter in Berlin, meaning he had been a firefighter before the war, you know, as well. Um, and he talked about going and, and uh, you know, after the raid, helping to to pick up the bodies of some of these dead animals, you know, pick up the, you know, the carcasses of some of these dead animals. And he said that, you know, as he was doing this, he just 
like broke down into sobs and he couldn't figure out why, you know, and he said, you know, I kept telling myself just four hours ago, you carried six dead children out of a, out of a basement and shed no tears. Why are you crying over animals? You know, and I, you know, when people tell you these stories sometimes, and again, I, as me speaking to them, one professional to another, you know, I told them, I said, well, you know, sometimes we, we may shed tears for some, for one thing, <clears throat> but what we're really shedding tears for is something else. You know, it's just, we all have our, we all have our limits. I have mine. I've reached mine before. And in this case, he, he reached his. Um, so he wasn't really crying for the animals and he was crying for the children. It's just, it didn't hit him until he saw the animals. Uh, kind of, if, if that makes sense. Now I'll warn you that this next story I'm about to relate to you is particularly graphic. So just know that in advance. This story was related to me by a uh, gentleman who was 13 years old in 1944. Um, he was uh, in the Hitler Youth and was um, an auxiliary firefighter. Because of his small size, I mean, he's, kind of, he's actually small for his age, is how he described it to me. He was frequently used to kind of worm his way into debris piles, rubble piles of buildings and stuff, to search for uh, people trapped, you know, inside. So, um, he, uh, and I will say to, you know, I feel like I have to say this, um, cause yes, he had been in the, he was in the Hitler youth, you know, in 1944, but also remember he was 13 years old. He was like two when the Nazis came to power. He had no memory of anything other than the Nazis being in charge and, you know, membership in the Hitler youth was compulsory. You know, you didn't have a choice. Uh, I mean, I say is like how politically astute were you at 13? I know what I was interested in at 13, and it sure as hell wasn't politics, you know. So he was just a, a child that's caught up in circumstances. And had any of us been born in his shoes, that could have been us instead of him. You know, so um, they had an apartment building that had collapsed um, in the bombing raid. And so he kind of worms his way into the apartment building, and the rubble hadn't fallen into the basement. So the floor of the building was still intact, and as he's uh, crawling along, the floor gives way, and he falls down into the basement, and he lands flat on his back. And he said he landed in liquid. He kind of landed with a with a splash, you know. And he's afraid that the basement is filling up with water, so he you know he yells for help, and they lower a rope down to him. And you know, pull him back up to ground level. And he says, when he uh, gets back outside, you know, he, he's he's back on the street. Some of the firefighters and police officers that are there, you know, they see him and they turn around and immediately vomit. And he can't figure out what's going on. So um, other people are like pointing towards his back and he said his back felt like sticky and wet you know so he thought maybe he had landed on something you know he gotten hurt like something had, had ripped his 
something open on his back or something. So he said he, he reaches around with his right hand and he like wipes it across the small of his back. And as he brings his hand around in front of him, all of a sudden the smell hits him. And when he looks at his hand, he realizes what it was that he had landed in. And it wasn't water. It was liquefied human fat. Um, some of these incendiaries were liquid-based, and they were specifically designed to run down into basements and cellars and you know set people on fire. So what he landed in was in what was left of the people that were in that in that shelter. And again, he was 13 years old, you know, when this happened to him. And uh, when I was interviewing him, I was only a couple of months removed from um, a fire in which we had lost uh, a couple of children. And, you know, it was a particularly traumatic fire for me. Uh, still is. It's one, I mean, it's one of the reasons now all these years later I still don't sleep at night. But I remember asking him, uh, I said, you know, I'm asking you this you know, one professional to another, but I mean, how do you, how do you cope with something like that? You know? And, uh, he, he looked at me and said, you don't, all you can do is, is accept that it happened, you know? And I think in a way he, he's, he may be right, you know? Um, and there were a lot of, a lot of stories like that, that I heard or similar stories like that, that I heard, um, and how, you know, you go into a shelter and there's numerous dead inside and it, they didn't remove the bodies right away, uh, because, you know, especially in the ongoing, they're looking more for, for rescuing live victims. And so they would just scrawl on the wall on the outside of the building on a, you know, um, the number of dead, you know, 20 tote, 40, 50 tote, you know, whatever. And, and leave it, leave it there, uh, for people to come along and pick up. And a lot of times the actual removal of the dead bodies, not always, but a lot of times the people that were used for that were, um, uh, compulsory labor from concentration camps. Uh, they were, if <clears throat> they agreed to do body removal and whatnot after raids, they were given slightly better rations, um, it's kind of a, an incentive to do it. Um, and that's what they would also often use for removal of, of deceased bodies. Um, but that, again, that's just kind of one story. Uh, occasionally you would have, um, in the midst of these air raids where you're seeing people, you know, killed in, in bombings, uh, you would, you would sometimes have, um, crowd, I guess you call it crowd disasters, uh, in a way, uh, crowd crush type disasters. Um, this also happened in London. Uh, you had an incident at, I believe it was Bethnal Green, uh, where you had uh, a crush of people trying to get into an air raid shelter that led to uh, fatalities. Uh, if you, there's a All Bad Things podcast episode that covers that. So um, if you want to hear about it from, you know, what UK perspective or what happened in the U, uh, UK during the war, then, then go check out that episode. But it happened in Berlin as well. Uh, one Berlin firefighter mentioned to me kind of a stampede or a crush at an air raid shelter on New Year's Day, 1944. Uh, he told me that, <clears throat> his best of his recollection, there were two dozen fatalities at it. Um, I, ha I was able to confirm that. Uh, there's mention of it in a couple of different nonfiction uh, books, but there's no uh, 
no details given other than basically that it happened. But this is a quote directly from this particular firefighter. He said, of course, I saw much worse things than that during the war, but there's something about this particular thing that sticks with me, you know, end quote. Um, two other, two other firefighters made a reference to another kind of crowd crush at a shelter in, uh, Nalcon in Berlin. Um, one of them, uh, this is a quote from him. Uh, I helped remember 10, uh, I I helped remove 10 bodies. Uh, the other said, quote, I don't know how many died. It was easier not to count End quote. Um, that this incident happened again, they said the summer of 44, but no, no specific actual like date date happened. Um, and then another, uh, story was uh, related to me by someone who'd been a child in Magdeburg during the war. And they said that, um, they told me that there was another, uh, crowd crush disaster that happened during a raid. Um, people trying to get into the shelter. They didn't realize that the doors to the underground bunker were already closed. And so, you know, these people were crushed up against the doors trying to get in. And then the doors opened outward. Okay, so um, the quote from the this uh, person said, quote, uh, when the raid ended, they they couldn't open the doors. There were so many bodies piled up that the shelter staff couldn't get the doors open until the policemen and firemen removed the bodies. Um, then you have me asking, do you know how many people were killed? Um, his response, no, I heard it was 50 or a hundred, but I don't know if that was during the entire raid or, or just at the shelter doors, you know, in quote. So that's his, his statement. So again, you have like disasters in the midst of disasters, you know, if you think about it. Um, and despite the, uh, you know, the, the frequency of the air raids also remember, um, fire crews were still responding to you know, normal calls, the same kind of calls they would get in peacetime in the middle of all this too, because you still had fires occurring normally. You still had car accidents and, and uh, you know, train accidents and things like that. So the, the war calls are piling on top of, you know, the existing calls. Out of the, out of the 1,800 or so uh, professional firefighters in Berlin when the war started, only 80 of them, eight zero of them would survive the war. That's it. Um, and there are, there is a list of a partial list of names of firefighters that were uh, in Berlin that were killed in action during the war. But the period from uh, when the heaviest raid started up kind of through the end of the war, they don't really have good records for, um, they also, uh, said, and this was something that kind of the official historian of the Berlin Fire Brigade confirmed to me, they did not keep track of the number of aux auxiliary firefighters killed um, in action. So they're, even the few numbers they have are only specific to the professional uh, firefighting force in Berlin. As bad as the air raids were, though, um, things would get worse because in April of 1945, the Red Army shows up. And now you have the ground battle of Berlin where they're fighting street by street, house by house. And in the midst of all of this, Berlin firefighters are still responding to calls. The telegraph fire alarm system in Berlin was still operating. And even while Russian soldiers and, and German soldiers were fighting street by street, house by house, block by block, the Berlin fire brigade was still on duty and still responding to calls. Um, there were about two dozen Berlin firefighters killed in action during the last two weeks of the war. 
um, from, you know, they're, they're driving to a call or from a call, they get caught in an, in an artillery strike. Uh, they get caught in between the lines and they're killed in a, a firefight between, uh, Russian and, and, and German soldiers. Yet they're still on the job, you know, still hanging in there. So at the very end of April, when general Goldbach, um, ordered the evacuation of, uh, fire trucks and the remaining firefighting personnel in Berlin, um, as I said, kind of towards the beginning of the episode, um, some firefighters remained behind, um, of Berlin's 35 fire stations. Four of them were still operational all the way up until the day the war ended. Um, at those stations, firefighters did remain on duty even after the bulk of the rest of the department had left, uh, with their, <clears throat> with their trucks. Um, I, I ask, uh, I remember asking one of these Berlin firefighters, one of the ones who had volunteered to remain behind. And I ask him, uh, you know, why basically like why when, so when, when the, your official orders were to leave, why did you volunteer to stay behind? And he just shrugged his shoulders and said, it was my job, you know? And, and he asked me, he said, uh, don't they have those hurricanes where you work? And I said, yes. And he said, well, what do you do when the hurricanes come and do you leave or do you stay behind and work? <clears throat> and I said, well, I, I stay behind and work. And he said, why? Because it's my job, you know? And he kind of looked at what he did kind of the same way. Um, I, uh, one of the, the people that I interviewed, um, was, uh, had been a young woman, uh, she's 17 years old. Um, and she was one of the few female auxiliary firefighters that stayed behind after the evacuation was ordered. Um, even knowing what might happen to her. And as it turned out, it, it, it did. And as I was uh, talking to her, um, I didn't bring the subject up. Uh, she, she volunteered the information that, um, you know, she had been uh, sexually assaulted by a couple of young uh, Russian soldiers. And um, I asked her, I said, um, you know, all these years later now, you know, do you, do you still feel any hatred to towards those, those two soldiers? And she said, no, she said, I, I forgave them a long time ago. Um, she said, we were, she said, they were the same age as me. She said, I grew up in a country that taught me to hate them. They grew up in a country that taught them to hate me. She said, we were, she said, they were victims too, um, just as I was. And she said, um, she just kind of shrugged her shoulders and she said, war is war, you know, and, and terrible things happen. And that's why we shouldn't have wars. You know, that was her kind of response to, um, to it, which I thought was a, um, <clears throat> fairly mag magnanimous thing to say, given, you know, what had happened to her. Um, but yes, again, you know, these, uh, Berlin firefighters were some of them staying on the job, even until the, until the very end, um, facing, uh, horrendous, uh, circumstances, uh, challenges, um, and yet still managed to, to, to try and do their jobs. Um, we don't know for sure how many fire service personnel died in, in Germany during the course of the war. The best estimate I was given was over 10,000. Uh, but again, 
there's no way to know for sure, you know, unfortunately. Uh, but these firefighters showed the same uh, tenacity that firefighters in other warring countries showed uh, during the war and did their jobs with the same dedication that firefighters in other countries exhibited as well. One example of that uh, kind of here in the United States is what we'll talk about in the next episode when we ride along with the Honolulu Fire Department on the day that Pearl Harbor was bombed. So you have that to look forward to um, coming up. The, you know, the overall experience of, of being bombed was something that civilians and, and various of the warring powers, you know, had in common. If you were a child that had grown up in London during the war, you would have that experience, that shared experience with a child that had grown up in, say, Berlin during the war. Um, and I know that in Germany, uh, a lot of people that are kind of elderly today, um, they first identified this, you know, quite a few years ago, but um, were exhibiting signs of uh, trauma that when they really got to looking at the ages and everything, it was these were children that at three, four, five years old had experienced these heavy raids in 1943, 44, 45, and 50 years after the war, they started having issues, you know, problems sleeping. Uh, they might have a panic attack if they smelled smoke or heard a, a, a fire truck siren, you know, something like that. And they were able to kind of trace that back to trauma from the war itself. Um, and also, because in, in Germany, it was a little different than, say, United States and the UK, you know, uh, there's the whole kind of funny faulty towers uh, clip about, you know, don't mention the war, you know, and it's kind of true uh, in the aftermath of, of World War II Germans that they, they didn't talk about it. Uh, you didn't talk about your experiences. Um, and so be because you can't talk about it, you can't get it out there. And so you, you live with all of this kind of in your head. And that's why in some cases it may have taken decades, but it started to manif manifest itself you know, down the road. Um, and that's certainly, uh, certainly true. Um, and I know, you know, there's a kind of a debate as to whether or not you can consider, you know, the German civilian population that experienced these air raids as victims of Nazism. And people argue that either way. Um, I, I'll just say this, uh, you know, adults, we make the world that we live in. You know, I mean, we're responsible for the world in which we live. Uh, the true victims are your children and animals, you know. And so in the case of Germans, and by this I don't mean Jews or other groups that were targeted by the Nazis. I mean average, regular, everyday Germans. As adults, you, you know, support the Nazis or you go along with it. Even if you don't outright support them, you just keep quiet and go on about your business. Um, and so in a way, you're kind of indirectly responsible for what comes as a result of it. But... You know, children and animals, uh, they don't, they're not able to fully understand why things are happening. So in the event of, say, these air raids, all they know is fear. But there's no, there's no, there's no knowledge of why it's happening and like to base that fear on, if that makes sense. And so those are, they're the, the, the true victims. Um, in my opinion, not necessarily the, the adult population in Germany. And, you know, 
you come across people that say, well, you know, the, you know, they all deserved it because of what the Nazis were doing, but does a six month old infant deserve to be burned alive in its crib because of something that adults in the country are doing? I mean, if you believe that you're a sick bastard, you know, in my opinion, um, you know, children should never pay for the sins of, of the adults. But unfortunately, war is, an, is nasty and war is a nasty, brutal business. And um, it's not it's not pretty, you know, uh, bad things happen. And and unfortunately, you know, in the case of World War Two, that was truly a no holds barred contest between all of the all of the warring powers. Um you know, and, and it, it's, uh, it's just one of those things. I mean, sometimes I guess to defeat evil, you have to do evil things. I don't know, but, um, but it is just a, it's a, it's a, it's a brutal business, you know? Um, and it's one of those things where, you know, firefighters were, as I said, on the front lines, um, on, in all of your major warring powers and they, stayed on the job and, and did their duty, um, despite great hardships and an even greater risk of death or injury than what you would see during peacetime, uh, which definitely speaks, uh, speaks to their, to their bravery. Um, you know, one thing that I never had to do was put out fires while people were dropping bombs on me. I mean, occasionally getting shot at, yeah, but not, not having people drop bombs on you. That's, uh, that adds a whole new level of difficulty to it. Um, that, you know, if that had been going on, I don't know that I necessarily would have wanted to be a fireman, but, um, I, I had a lot, you know, to put into this episode and it's already gone kind of way too long. Um, but you know, there's other stories and stuff that I didn't kind of mix in, but they all kind of say the same thing or say the same types of things. Um, so, you know, there's really nothing, uh, the ones that I thought stood out are the ones that I, that I put in. I wanted to end with playing you uh, some audio that was recorded uh, on the ground in Berlin during an air raid, but, uh, you know, I had it saved uh, to play for you. Unfortunately, I didn't, I didn't capture the audio um, yet. I was going to do it as I made this episode, and the, the audio itself was on a YouTube channel, but in the amount of time it's taken me to put this episode together, that YouTube channel has been, that YouTube account has been terminated, so I don't have that audio to play, which is unfortunate because... It's good audio. So also in the, uh, in the, in the podcast notes, I'm going to uh, link one other thing uh, for you to watch. It's a short film that was made in Germany. Um, however, you do not have to speak German because there's really not a lot of dialogue in the film. Uh, it's from the vantage point of a, uh, an elderly woman, you know, today, or I guess today at the time the movie, the film was made. And you can see the lingering trauma that that wartime bombing experience has on her in in this uh in this video it's a pretty powerful you know little piece of a uh, short film so that's it and until next time take care of yourselves and each other and be sure to go to the old flames podcast page to check out some photographs that go along with today's episode and none of them are graphic so you know don't worry about that part